Assalamu alaikum, everybody. This is Brother Ali sending you peace and love. I just wanted to jump on at the beginning before we get into this episode and say that I'm in America traveling around doing speaking engagements and performances. If you go to brotherali.com in the events section, you'll be able to see a bunch of those. Just did a really fun one in Bend, Oregon last night. You might be able to hear my voice. But I want to say before we jump into this episode that because of the different settings and circumstances, it's really unfortunate, but there is a kind of a technical audio issue in parts of this episode where you'll hear me say something and then a second or two later you'll hear it echo on Preacher Moss's end. Uh, and so there's a bit of a, like a delay and even like a, a weird echo sometimes. It's unfortunate because Preacher Moss is so important to me. He's so important to the Muslim community in America and he's really important to the comedy community, you know, that, that brought out people like Azhar Usman and uh, even Dave Chappelle and uh, Hassan Minhaj, who just interviewed Barack Obama, Rami Youssef, a bunch of the Muslim comedians, like he's our OG in a lot of ways. And so I, I had to rock with this episode just because of how important he is, how great the conversation is. He led a tour called Allah Made Me Funny. And my song called Good Lord was actually the theme song uh, for the uh, movie about that comedy special and comedy tour. They performed all over the world with that name. Really historic, monumental stuff. So I used to listen to old school radio shows on cassette tape, and they would say, we hope, however, that any decreased audio will not take away from your pleasure in listening to The Traveler's Podcast with Preacher Moss. Much love. Peace and love, everybody. I'm Brother Ali. You're you. This is the Travelers Podcast. BK is producing. Preacher Moss is the guest. All is right in the world. Things are going so good for me that even trying to explain it to you, I could cry. And I actually have. Like maybe you hear a bit emotional. It's a trip being an artist, man. It really is no joke because we're so sensitive and our sensitivity is what fuels and allows for our work to happen. So we're so sensitive to what's going on inside us. We feel everything going on inside of us. We also feel a lot of what's going on in the people and things around us. And we're observing that and making meaning of it and documenting it and expressing it. But then we also have to be aware of our listeners as well, or our audience, because we make this art at least I do, to, like Kanye says, I wish I could give you this feeling. Like we feel all these things and process and make things from them that hopefully help you understand or even observe or witness what we're feeling and what we understand about it. And it might speak to you and it might just expand the way you understand things or something, or just make you aware that somebody else experiences it like that. And that's really important. That's really profound. And my main teacher, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, says beauty is the splendor of truth because truth is from the unseen world of virtue. You know, we believe that the source, one of the names of Allah is Al-Haq, the true, the real. The creator is the truth. The source is the truth. The source also 
creates truth and reveals truth. But truth is is an unseen reality in the world of meaning. And trying to talk about it always with words and try to convince people with words and language, you know, and classes and books and things like that. I mean, a lot of times you got the intellect in the way and you got the ego in the way. You know what I'm saying? So intellectually, we're seeing and understanding things differently. And then you got the ego also that's like emotionally connected to my own views. And like my views have a special merit because they're mine and I'm me. And you got to see it the way. And I'm smart and I'm right. And I'm, you know, and I'm a good person. All of this stuff, you know what I mean? And you know, I've been through this and all that's true. But a lot of times those are hangups. Whereas, you know, beauty is the splendor of truth. So you, if you're able to do something beautiful, that actually brings truth from the unseen and makes it seen and heard in ways that just might circumvent the ego, circumvent even the intellect and communicate from heart to heart. That's what we're trying to do. That's, a, that's, that's the mission. That's our gift. That's our goal. That's our work. That's our prison. That's our turmoil. That's our death sentence. I mean, feeling this stuff and you can drown in it. I mean, love is like that. The spiritual path is like that, you know? And we focus on ourselves a lot. And that can be seen as narcissism sometimes by somebody that doesn't understand them. And we can even make a misstep into narcissism. It's a path, just like the spiritual path is a path. The path of an artist is very similar, and they overlap in a lot of ways. And some would even say they're one and the same. For people who are really traveling on a spiritual path, their religion or their practice or whatever, it's not just a science to them. It is a science, but it's also an art. And that's the part that people don't always like to talk about. That's the part that a lot of religious people miss. It's a science. And so it's like, these are the rules and this is the theology and this is, and you need all of that because a human being is a soul, but a human being is also an ego. A human being is also an intellect that can go wrong, and a human being is a heart that can have these different states. It can be filled with beauty. It can also be filled with rage and animosity and stuff like that. So you need that fence to go around your garden, you know what I'm saying? But you're also the garden, and that's an art, you know? So so the spiritual path is also an art, and also art is also a science. It's also a spiritual path. You got to get good at You got to get good at it. You got to honor it. You got to dedicate yourself to it. You got to develop the skill of it, you know. But the artist, we're like, we look at ourselves in a way that seems like uh, narcissism and it can become that. So like we're traveling and when you're traveling, missteps are part of traveling. Like we're, we all come in from wherever we were. We're going to where we're fixing to be. And right now where we are is alive in every step we're taking. And there's missteps along the way. And that's part of traveling. That, that's not a sign that I should stop. That's a sign to keep going and refine. That's why co-travelers are so important. People that are with us on the journey. Because a lot of times I'm not going to see when I'm making a misstep, but I witness their walk and I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. What can I learn from that? Or that person's really messing up. Let me make sure. What can I learn from that? Maybe sometimes somebody doing something ugly is actually a beautiful gift to the rest of us, you know, and we should be patient, merciful with them and actually grateful to them because they're experiencing some, you know, we see jealousy in somebody else and then they show it. They don't even know they're showing it. 
And it's like, man, I could judge them for being jealous or I could thank them and be grateful to them. Like they're actually gifting me something because I probably don't see it when I'm being jealous. And now I know what that looks like. Now I know it's because that same thing is inside me. There are missteps and the co-travelers are what's so important about that. So I'm viewing my life really right now in a way where I'm in art mode and I'm also trying to make art about it while I'm drowning in this moment of gratitude and healing. And it's just all makes sense to me now in a way that it never did before. <laughs> and I'm trying to make art so that someday soon, hopefully I can share that with you so that you can see what this moment felt like with me. And like, oh my God, that's so crazy, you know? So the thing with co-travelers is like, but there are people that understand that and I just need them to know what's happening. So I, I talk a lot about these people because they're so important to me. They're, they're so necessary to me. I talk a lot about my wife. I talk a lot about Amir Suleiman. I talk a lot about Ant and Slug and my teacher, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah and Shane Atkinson and Imam Khalis Rashad and Jamal Diwan. You know, there are a lot of people that I'm like, I connect with these people and they help me. I need these people. But I just recently just sent a voice note to Yasin Bey. And I was like, I am having a very profound moment and I'm making music about it. I'm like, my heart is just out here. I have no protection. I have no shield. It's, I'm just so exposed right now. And I just sent that voice note to him. And it's like, it's enough to me to know that he got, and he sent me one back. That's very beautiful. And I appreciate it. But that's what The Travelers is about for me. I hope it makes sense to you. And um, Yasin Bey is on tour right now with Erica Badu. I won't be missing that. I don't recommend missing that. I'm also going to be out here for the next couple of weeks uh, doing shows and speaking engagements and things like that. Go to brotherali.com in the events section. Check that out. And that leads me to the guest this week. You know, so many of these people, so many leaders, so many pioneers, they oftentimes are not as well known as the people who they inspire. Like if we think about the fact that Elvis was the first megastar ever that didn't exist before him, that was a brand new thing when he did that. And he's known and he's called the king of rock and roll, but he didn't make up, he didn't write you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And he didn't even sing it nearly as well as Big Mama Thornton did. The Big Mama Thornton version of You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog is ill. It's crazy. Like, go listen to it. And in her world, though, so it's not to take anything away from her, because in her world, I can only imagine what it was like to be in a room where Big Mama Thornton is singing that song and command, and leading the band and doing her thing. And there's probably all sorts of stuff that I don't know about. So it's not to diminish who she is and what her impact is and what her platform was. Outwardly, it's not as big as Elvis, but I'd rather be in a room with her. The first big hip hop record, the first smash hit global record was Rapper's Delight. Hip, hop, hibbit, hibbit, well, I'm the M-A-N, the rest is F-L-Y, and these reasons I tell you why. Okay, those dudes had a million seller record, millions, countless millions all over the world. But Big Bang Hank from the Sugar Hill Gang wasn't really even an MC. He was trying to become a manager for Grandmaster Cass, who was actually the greatest MC at that time. No disrespect to Melly Mel or Kumo D or anybody else, but all of the great MCs that I look up to, they all say Grandmaster Cass is the one that made us all know what was possible with MCing. 
the rhymes that Big Bank Hank spit on that record, he just asked Grandmaster Kaz, can, hey, can I have one of your rhyme books? Uh, Sylvia Robinson and them are trying to record a rap record and I'm going to rap. I just need the words. Can I borrow your words? So he's like, yeah, just gave him an old rhyme book. Sure, do whatever you want. So the world knows Sugar Hill Gang. A lot of people don't know who Grandmaster Kaz is. But if you're from hip hop, if you know hip hop, if you're from the Bronx, you know that that man is a living legend and a walking icon. When Jay-Z said, I'm overcharging executives for what they did to the Cold Crush, that's what he's talking about. So oftentimes the people that are pioneering something, they can't see it in the way that others are going to see it because they're just living their life. They are revealing it as it happens. The creator is revealing it in their lives. But then somebody else will see it and be like, oh, if somebody spit those words on a record with a band playing the break that the DJ is playing and we put it out on a record, the whole world can experience how dope that is. But the person who's actually doing it in the community, in the moment, at the party, in the park, you know what I'm saying, rapping into the headphones on a tape deck, they don't see that. And so a lot of times when we see something big, there's someone behind it that actually inspired it. And honestly, those are the people I'm more interested in talking to. And that's the kind of person that we're talking to today. Uh, we know these Muslim comedians and they're dope. I love them. So a lot of them have been on the podcast. The other ones will be soon, inshallah. But I mean, Mo Amr, Rami Youssef, Hassan Minhaj, even Chappelle, even Dave Chappelle, these, these amazing comedians, their OG is Preacher Moss. And Preacher Moss was one of the first, and if he wasn't the first, he was the first to dedicate himself to it for a long period of time. Muslim comedians that was actually in comedy clubs in the 90s doing black comedy, urban comedy, at a time when there was a deep separation. Black comedy and white comedy were two completely separate universes. And Preacher Moss is somebody that was out there actively Muslim and living the religion in the art space. So what does that mean? I'm not going to use vulgar language. You know what I'm saying? Now, you know my catalog. I haven't always been dedicated to that. So he said, I'm not going to use vulgar language. I'm not going to disrespect anybody. Like, I'm not going to rank people or jones on people or cap on people or snap on people. That's a big part of what that was at that time. Man, your head looked like a so-and-so, so-and-so. Ah! Or to, or to diss celebrities to mock them and mimic them and make fun of them and degrade them. Preacher Moss wouldn't do any of that. Preacher Moss was in the time of deaf comedy jam, not cussing, not dissing people in the room, not dissing other people, just funny observations about life. Another thing that's so dope is that a lot of people that end up having these really amazing, almost like prophetic type of roles in a space, they are touched by someone who, who guided them, an example who passes the torch to them in some kind of way. So again, I hope this doesn't sound narcissistic to put myself in this category, but when I was 13 years old, I loved hip hop. I loved KRS-One. I wanted to be a preacher. I wanted to speak. I loved all of that stuff. I saw KRS-One give a lecture when I was 13. He brought me on stage. I asked a question. He brought me on stage and I stood there next to him with my favorite rapper looking out at the audience and I knew this is what I am. I'm not the same person that I was because of that day. Everything that's happened for me, speaking at the Nobel Peace Prize and all this other stuff, 
I am the person I am because of that moment. That moment has great meaning. Kendrick Lamar came outside one time and there's a crowd of people when he was a little kid and he saw Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg and Tupac filming a video in his neighborhood. And he looked at them and he's like, oh, that's what I am. And that's what he is. You know what I'm saying? He's the inheritor of them. Cornell West talked on this show about the fact that he sat in the audience and watched Martin Luther King give a speech and then Martin Luther King got killed when he was in high school. And he said he knew in his heart, I have to dedicate my life to what Dr. King was dedicated to. And when you see Dr. Cornell West, he is the inheritor in his way of Martin Luther King. Preacher Moss looked up to Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory was the comedian of the civil rights movement and of the black freedom movement and the black power movement. He was the comedian of that group. So he was there with Dr. King. He was there with Malcolm X. He was there with Harry Belafonte, who passed away recently. May he rest in peace. He was there with Nina Simone. He was there with, and he was the comedian and the spokesperson for that movement. And at some point you'll hear, but Preacher Moss connected with Dick Gregory. And Preacher Moss is our Dick Gregory. Preacher Moss is in our community, in the American Muslim community, and in some ways in the global Muslim community. He's our Dick Gregory. And the comedians and even myself, I mean, he is an OG to me. I don't think he's a full generation older than me, but he's definitely a big brother. And Preach is one of the people that he's been so patient with me. He's been so loving with me. Like when I was cussing and when I was talking crazy and when I was out here being a little reckless, Preach is somebody who knew where I came from and <laughs> always spoke to the best in me. He, it's, it's like, you know, when I was with him, he could tell I was feeling it. You know what I mean? That, man, I'm, I'm kind of out here wilding and I know better than this. But Preach always dealt with me like he just talked to the best in who I am. And he's somebody that is profoundly inspirational to a lot of us. And so I just had to give that context. Sorry for talking a long time. We're sponsored as always by the Zakat Foundation. Preach has also done really dope work with the Zakat Foundation. And um, they're just a, a organization that does great work all over the world, humanitarian work. Z-A-K-A-T.org is their website. Z-A-K-A-T.us is their social media handle. I'm saying while you're listening to this, go there and just find something to put some money down. I've, you probably have heard me say this over and over again, and maybe you've never done it. Let this be the week that you just go and put five fifty. million, just put whatever you can. You can give something. Uh, Just go to them and give it. And know that not only are they doing great humanitarian work around the world, but they also support the artists and the cultural workers that are tied in with that movement. They understand what it means to have a Muslim Dick Gregory. They understand what it means for us to be doing this work and the people that we have on this podcast. They understand what hip hop means and they understand that like in order for a movement to be real, it's got to be woven in with culture. And that, that means a lot. So much love to Zakat Foundation. Sorry for talking so long. I'm coming from the heart. I think you can feel that this conversation is one I've been really looking forward to. Enjoy this conversation with the great preacher Moss.
Man, I'm happy to finally do this, brother. I've been wanting to have you on since the idea of launching this show. I think I mentioned it to you before, but I'm glad you you're did, here, man. man. Thank you. I'm, and I'm like, I got to get you on uh, the Shout Out Show. We're one day a week now. Uh, yeah. we, we, we did that like 500 consecutive shows, then we went to four days a week. And then uh, you just felt the strength of the show. It's like, it's kind of time to go back out on the road. It's a new projects, so it's like you can't be in, can't be in front of your computer four days a week, five days a week. And yeah, during the pandemic, man, that really meant a lot. I know a lot of people were were taking a lot of peace and solace and just joy at seeing you and hearing you. And it's not a lot of people can turn the camera and the mic on and just go on their own. And you doing it every day was a really I I really grew to look forward to it. Man, it was so it was so much fun. Sort of like uh you take a Friday off, man. Somehow people are like calling you up. Are you dead? Are you all right? What's up, man? You're my reminder. I'm like, so hey, so you spoiled. Good. All right, cool. It's it's always been about time. You know, I remember when I, I, I first heard your stuff. And I got a link and it was on a nighttime show. Was it it wasn't Conan. Was it Conan? Were you did Uncle Sam goddamn? Yeah. It was Conan. Yeah. Okay. All right. Nah, man, I was like, the timing was uh, impeccable. You couldn't have dropped that that record at any better time for particularly uh, communities of color and the Muslim community. We had this weird lag after Islamophobia. After 9-11, we kind of had this romanticism with Islamophobia. Like, if we talk to these people, we're going to be able to convert them. I'm like, no, when somebody doesn't like you, they don't like you. <laughs> it doesn't matter what diet you give them they're not going right. to like you and you have to respect the fact that they're committed that way yeah it's amazing that that's the first thing you saw because that's the first thing that Chappelle saw too that's when he still was kind of in between like whether or not he was going to come back after leaving his show and so he was traveling a lot in the Muslim world and he was in Saudi Arabia at a prince's house and he just feeling really out of place. But this prince was a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. So he's like, you know, what do, what do you want to do? So I guess Dave said, can we just watch American TV, man? <laughs> and so they turned on TV and he flipped through and they see Conan. And he's like, yeah, leave it here. This is funny. I like this guy. And then uh, that was me. And Mint Condition was my band that day. All right. I don't really want to talk about Mint Condition. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> told you my main condition uh, story now tell me again man oh man okay fine there's a there's a festival held in milwaukee probably familiar with it every summer it's called Summerfest. oh yeah i had a gig to open up at Summerfest. i was in my jazz my jazz thing series i was like jazz comedian I got a job at opening up at Summerfest. it was for main condition i did not do my homework they had like the number one hit, like uh, Pretty Brown Eyes. I'm not even listening to mainstream radio. It's, it's Miles Monk, you know, Thelonious, it's Peterson. I got this serious diet of jazz going on. Mm-hmm. And man, I got up there to do my set. I didn't even touch the stage. Like I barely touched. It's the thing when you reach for the mic, but it's a different thing when you, <laughs> you walk on stage. And they were like, boo. It's like, you can hear from <laughs> Milwaukee all the way to Chicago to Detroit. I'm like, and I didn't get in. I was supposed to do 15 minutes. I didn't get in two minutes. And I think the guys in the band were just trying to rescue me. So they just come on stage and start setting up while I'm on stage. So I'm supposed to introduce them. 
they just said no. And it's like, boo. And oh, man, it was like, boo, his, his, boo. And it makes it worse because I'm wearing a suit, right? Right. I got the full-on cow tie, spotted, black, white, black. I'm looking good, but I'm bombing. <laughs> I'm bombing before I could even bomb. You know what I mean? Let me bomb on my own merits. <laughs> uh, just imagine like 6,000 people going, pretty brown eyes, pretty brown eyes, pretty brown eyes. And uh, yeah, that was it. So I was just talking Milwaukee. Thank goodness there was no social media back then. I don't think I'd have been able to work anywhere. I listen to this stuff now. Nothing left to say. That's one of my favorite songs. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, songwriter, I'm like, you should have really vibe with these guys who are musicians. But just due to the fact, and I think it made it worse because it was Milwaukee anyway. Uh, Milwaukee has a whole nother vibe. So it was like, it was was a learning experience. But I laugh every time I think about it. Every time I see the lead singer, and I saw you on... TV one, uh, what's it with? The unsomething, the unshow? Yeah, yeah, unsung. Unsung. You were unsung uh, talking about men condition. And they bought you, and I was like, oh, man, I can't even watch unsung. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, here's my man. He's, he's tight with him. I'm like, oh. I, I was like, I might have to, I might, I might have to lose Bella Ali's number. Just... <laughs> That's amazing, man. Yeah, Stokely was one of the first guests on the podcast. That's my man. And he actually is an amazing, like he plays all the instruments, but a percussionist, man. He's incredible, the lead singer. I was actually in a jazz band with him and a brother by the name of Jeff Lee Johnson, a guitar player that, you know, he was an old bebop player from Philly. And then around the time that Quest Love started doing Erica Badu and D'Angelo and all that stuff, he played guitar on a lot of that stuff. And so we were in a band together. And mm-hmm. that was when I, I learned a lot about music and a lot about jazz and a lot about music history from those guys in particular. Yeah, the guys I have in my band are like straightaway jazz dudes. They play a little bit like mainstream. Well, Leon does it. My drummer, his name is Leon Alexander Jr. He was the um, former senior officer of the U.S. Navy Jazz Band. Mm-hmm. They've got the best musicians in the world. Yeah. They were in my comedy special. And then Taurus Mateen, bass player. You probably know Taurus. Yeah, yeah. Taurus yeah. is wicked. It's like, if you ain't on your game, you will get exposed. Like, if you don't have a concept that's tight, he's going to let you know. But Taurus is, he's such a laid-back jazz guy. I see him. We hang out all night. We do a road trip from Orlando to Tampa, come back. He's like, oh, man, you know, come in come in the house, meet the wife, meet the kid. Like, yeah. And I look over to the right, and it's like, what's that plaque? And it's like... 2016 uh, jazz downbeat bass player of the year. I'm like, you know, you want you might want to share that with a brother. Just, and he's like, yeah, 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 don't worry about. It. And I'm like, yeah, you're a jazz dude. But that's what I grew up around. Crazy. Did you grow up in DC? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a native Washingtonian. Uh, what part? What neighborhood? Northwest DC, uh, right mm-hmm. off of Seventh uh, and Kennedy. Parents moved to South. The migration pattern goes. If you're black in D.C. and you're government working, you saved your money, you move out of D.C. to Maryland, Prince George County, Maryland, which at one time was the largest black suburban area in the country and got out in the suburbs. But, you know, your heart's in the city. I, I, here's a laugh, man. I can tell you, this is how old I am, brother. On my birth certificate under race, <laughs> it doesn't say black. It says colored. <laughs> 
So, so I'm at the Canadian border, right? Which you can use your your birth certificate. I throw it down. The lady's like, "What is this colored?" What's this? It's like we gotta we gotta bring back uh, one of the cops from in the heat of the night. That means black. <laughs> yeah. Who gave you the name Preacher Moss? How'd you get that name? Uh, bad behavior gave me the name. <laughs> I mean, I think it's so perfectly fitting because of the fact that, you know, like you mentioned, you are a comedian, you're an artist, you're a writer, you're a producer. But like the imam said, you're a master teacher. And I mean, I have to bear witness to that. And you teach with the, the things that you do, the things you choose not to do, both on stage and off. And in a lot of ways, you know, we're in the era of, social media influencers pretending to be shakes and things like that. Yeah. And you are one of the people that is genuinely someone that walks with integrity. So that if a person were to see the way that you present yourself and the way that you present your art and the way that you speak and the way, and if somebody were to see you and interact with you off stage, you would be seeing the same person. You would be interacting with the same. So in a lot of ways, you know, not only are you a preacher, but you're one of our best preachers. Inshallah, man. Kind words. I when I took my shahada, man, I, I was um this is before people, this is before they had all the internet and the websites and the so I go pre-website, I go pre-social media. So there was a time when you wanted to be Muslim, Ali will attest to this. We were not the religion of peace. We were the religion religion of pamphlets. Yes. <laughs> People we give you pamphlets and refer you to the pamphlets. And um, when I took my shahada, we had evolved because we were now the religion of pamphlets and bumper stickers. Oh, man. The green and white bumper That's stickers. Right. Remember those joints? Oh, yeah. So the one I remember the most as a young Muslim that stuck with me to this day, it says, uh, it says, a man that doesn't keep his word has no religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a new Muslim, mm -hmm. dude, it, it was like it was like a scar, like Hack! like you don't keep your word, you have no religion. And I feel that still, mm -hmm. like I feel yeah. that still, like you know when somebody really tried to come through for you, it just didn't work out. Right. But you know when it's not sincere. Right. You know when it's sincere, right. but you know when it's not sincere. And it's like, yo, these type of things are what you carry over. But you could probably speak to this. One of the easiest reasons you can get into Islam when we were young was in the void of all this social media stuff. We lived by codes. That's right. We had codes. Yes, sir. There were things you didn't do. Yes, sir. There were things you didn't do. Um, you're going to speak on another man's name in a certain way and it's not true. You need to address that man. Right. You know, it was, hey, man, we're best friends. And me and my girl break up. You can't date her a month later. No. It's just things. No. There's just things you don't do. Um, hey man, times might be hard, but you leave the elderly alone. It's just things that you don't do, and it was the logic. It was just it's yes, like you probably been on posse's where somebody robbed the wrong grandma, wrong auntie. Oh yeah. One, we're gonna go get our money back, and two, you finna get taxed. And that was during yes. Islam. That's why I was Muslim. So it wasn't uh this thing, but it was it was these codes, and I think you you can probably speak to this. But having a very, very close relationship with the NOI from the time I'm 15, these are the things that you, you develop. So two stories. One, you asked me about the name Preacher. My mom was a churchaholic. 
Saturday school, Sunday early school, mm. regular service, mm. usher board, went through all of that. I didn't have attention deficit. I just knew when things didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> the logic is not working. Right. So we had a reverend, a very nice man, beautiful guy, but he was a horrible public speaker. See, you can't be a reverend <laughs> and a bad public speaker. Um, right. And he would give these really painful sermons. <laughs> And I'm I'm all of like four and five. Is like anybody else seeing this? This, this guy's horrible. <laughs> but I can't say anything because I'm five. But this is right. So the only right. way I can express myself, I used to do imitations of him giving bad sermons. <laughs> and I got so good at it at Sunday school, they would pay like a quarter. And then I got caught by an adult and they were paying a dollar. So I'm like, this uh, thing might work out for me, you know? And I, you know, I, I changed the character, the character called the Reverend <laughs> Spitty Mouth. And the Lord said, let Jesus be with him. And he, and, and it was so bad one time, Ali, he was preaching and somebody gave him a note that somebody needed to move that car. And the Lord said, move your car if your license plate is <laughs> The Lord didn't say that. You know? <laughs> You see this guy, and uh, I went from this character, Reverend Spitty Mouth, to this annoying kid called Preacher Moss, and never shook. It never shook. My mother hated it because she Amazing. knew where it came from. Amazing. Those were, you know, those were the stories. Now, the second story you're really going to love. People say, and I've had this complaint earlier when I was young, was like, why don't you just be mm. in a nation? That's what he said. Like, they don't want me to be in the master. I'm just being a nation. I'm like, listen, these are my people. Uh, and I wasn't really into this whole space of this, mm -hmm. this massive division. The whole idea of Madabs, it hadn't come to me. So, <laughs> right around the time I'm about to be Muslim, about thinking about it, about to make the jump, I'm thinking 100%, Ali, that I am going to be nation Islam. It worked out. I was in military school. I've been wearing uniforms from the time I was in seventh grade. I'm, I'm, I know what I'm going to look like. I got my hat. I, you know, I'm thinking. So I'm dealing with this brother, and, you know, he's an ex-con, and he was just talking about, you know, he's rapping to me about Islam and da-da-da and, and nation and all this type of stuff. And finally, he's like, you know what, brother? You look like you're ready. You need to go on down to the temple and handle this thing. Oh, you go down to, you know, you're young. Go down to the temple. He's like, go down to the temple and let them brothers know you ready to serve Allah and you ready to be a foot soldier for the army of Allah. I'm like, I'm ready to be a foot soldier. Look, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready to be a So he's like, you go down to Jersey Avenue, that's Muhammad's mom's number four, and they're going to take care of you. Well, here's the problem. I get there, Ali. There's no Muhammad's mosque number four. There's a plaque that says Muhammad's mosque number four. But this thing is uh, <laughs> Master Muhammad. And I walk <laughs> in and there's no, there's no bow ties. Yeah. There's no, you know what I mean? I go there on yeah. a Friday. I'm like, everybody's like, well, maybe it's casual Friday. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And nothing is happening. <laughs> so nothing is happening, Ali. And now I'm Sunni by default. Oh. And I'm like, hey, man. Oh. He's like, hey, how'd it go? I said, no, nah, man, you told me to go down there. Da, da, da. He said, well, did you, you tell him who sent you? I was like, yeah. He said, you, you, missed, you, you, uh, you brother Jeremiah 14X. And my man's like, dude, 
He's like, it's 1991. Ain't no, ain't no more exes out here. <laughs> I'm like, how long were you locked up, man? Amazing. How long were you locked up that you still had an ex? Listen, there's no exes in 1990. But that was the thing. And I think uh, Diametrica, yeah. I still carry those. I still carry those. Yeah. One of the things that's really important in my work, but also on this podcast, is the fact that so many of the most important people in the world aren't famous outside of their circle of influence. And you see it all the time with like bands or comedians or whatever, that somebody will say like, hey, come check this thing out. You got to see it. And you're like, I never heard of that before, but whatever, I'll go. And then you go and you're like, oh, I never heard about it, but this arena is sold out and this person is changing these people's lives. You know what I'm saying? And somebody like that, that we both had the blessing of being connected to is Imam Warthi Muhammad, Allah have mercy on him, who was the leader of the largest Muslim community in American history, the largest conversion and evolution. He's one of the most important Muslim leaders in American history and in a lot of ways in recent history around the globe. But people don't know who he is. Both of us coming from that community, I know the impact that he's had on your career, but I just want to just give some time and some space for you to just talk about that. In the WD community, I love him, but everybody got a imam story. And it's like, I was with right. an imam. Uh, <laughs> we had a conversation. He, he, we talked for like three years. He, uh, and he told me I was supposed <laughs> to take over the community. <laughs> he never told me to take over the community. <laughs> see, see you, 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 you see, brother, I, he told me I was the imam over all the imams of the Southwest Northeast region. <laughs> <laughs> he gives me the best advice. He gives me the best mm. advice. When I, Talk about doing all the me fun. Two pieces of advice. He goes, I love it. It's needed. It's right after 9-11. He goes, it's, we love it. You need it. He goes, but don't start in this community. He says, it'll die in committee. Don't try and put this idea out. And then he said, the work is over with our brothers and sisters over here. He says, they're the ones that are under attack. So you have to take the language over there and, and say, okay, this is, you got to stand on what you believe. So whether whatever's going to come, media stuff, stand on what you believe. And he's like, if you do it long enough, people find a place for you to find a value for you. And I, that was the thing. And I, I remember saying this, you're going to love this. And I say, ma'am, all due respect, sir. I said, it sounds like going over there. I was like, dude, that sounds like starting over. He goes, well, are you funny or not? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did say that. Man. But later on, we were in Philadelphia at a manor thing. And he, he, he lays it down. He goes, you know, he gives me this, this thing, which is true. This is the dopest thing I've heard. He's like, how's it going? I'm like, it's going well. He goes, it's not going to go well for long. I said, sir. He goes, he's saying, basically saying, in starting this space over, that the people that I'll be involved with, they don't know about the Hollywood thing. So you can't protect yourself here like you'd be able to protect yourself in Hollywood, agents, lawyers. You're just out here. And he's like, it'll, it'll come. That's what he said, you know, that day will come. And it's like, yo, what happened? What, you, know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yo. And when it happened, I'm like, you know what? The man told me that something. He already saw it. He saw it before I even started. But you have to be willing to go that way. You have to... It's like a teacher. And I think that was the thing you also say. You never be a master comedian yeah. because you're on the road to be a master teacher. 
we need the master teacher more than me, the master comedian. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to teach from the mm -hmm. stage, just like you do with your raps. But he was like, you're, you're, you're equipped for this thing because, yeah, you do comedy, but you know how to teach, which is the currency of being able to talk to people away from the stage, develop a certain equilibrium whereby they see you on the stage, but when they see you off the stage, it's the same continuity. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm not like, hey, 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 then you come off, I'm like depressed. Right. It's like, hey, man, how you doing? You know, I, I don't show up with bodyguards and stuff like that. I park my own cars. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just roll through. In the tradition of my mentor, the amazing Mr. Dick Gregory. Yes, sir. And that was, you know, and that was, and that was a great thing, too. So I had these guys as mentors, and, and, uh, and the, the funny part is one is a comedian, one understands comedy as social tool. Mm -hmm. this that space that Islam mm -hmm. has to be working you know it has to be working yeah. so I'm to, to an extent what Allah made me funny is like well this is a working mm -hmm. tool that we, we build foot yeah. soldiers to deal with these things but you know it doesn't always work out like that a lot of times it doesn't work out like that as the man uh, referenced when we first yeah. got started I remember the, the first the first show is hilarious I'm doing I'm trying to do advanced work for Allah made me funny and with others others mine in New Jersey. Uh nobody's talking to me. And I see this elderly sister like, come here, come here. And I'm like, oh, finally, somebody wants to give me a salam. You know what I mean? I walked over there and I'm like, the, the language's not there. And I'm like, hey, assalamu alaikum. You know, you're giving the whole thing. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, my beloved sister. And she just Picks up her teacup, like, hey, give me some tea. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, I need tea. Yeah. But I'm thinking of a man with the mom. Right. You know what he said? Right. Go get the tea. I get the tea. I go get her some tea. Then I go on stage. I'm performing like a guest in front of Azar. And uh, the lady's like, I need more tea. I'm like, you're going to have to oh wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was being, I was not bringing my tea. I'm like, and it was like, yo, you go through that. When did you connect with Dick Gregory and what was it like kicking it with him? I was in, I was in Milwaukee. I think it was my first or second year in teaching. So I'm in my early 20s. And uh, what happened was I, there was a club down in Chicago. So I was doing pretty good. Uh, with stand-up, and normally it's regional. We're going to talk about this too, inshallah. But, you know, to be a real comic, if you're Milwaukee, you're not a real comic till you get down to Chicago and get get certified. So I was doing the Jeff, Def Jam era, but here's the deal. I was already a clean comic. So people yeah. need to know that too. I was a clean comic <laughs> in the Def Jam era. Right, right, So right. I tell the lady, listen, one of my heroes, Dick Gregory, the booker, oh, no, we're going to be down here. You know, we need to hear that stuff. I go down there. Ali, they hand your boy his hat. Mm. They give me the business. It's worse than mm. my condition because I got fired. Um, I got fired. They were like, come back again. I got fired again. I'm like, oh. So I'm seeing all this stuff with, I'm seeing all this stuff with Def Jam. I'm like, you know what, man? It's it's overwhelming. You know, it's overwhelming. And so my mom goes, what's going on? And I'm like, hey, mom, I'm just, da -da -da. I think I have it. I'm, you know, I'm a young comic. I'm trying to do it this way. I'm trying to keep my Muslim space as much as I can, because you know, my identity is new as a new Muslim. And uh, she goes, well, I know who you should talk to. I'm like, who? She goes, yeah, talk Dick Gregory. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean Dick Gregory? Like, the one that wrote 
<laughs> nigger and 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 all those around. She's like, yeah. So she pulls a number out. I get Dick Gregory's number. I call. He picks up the phone, and I'm like, hey. Uh, and I just give him my whole story. My name's Preach Moss. I'm a, I'm a Muslim. I'm a comedian. I'm like, I've taken after you. You're one of my inspirations. I do social consciousness. I mean, I'm, I'm doing material framed around critical race theory. I'm like, I'm there. They're very good conversations. Like, What's the problem? And I give him a couple of my jokes. He's all oh, those are good jokes. And I'm like, yeah, but I got booed off the stage, man, in Chicago. I can't even go back down 94. And he's like, so what's your problem? I'm like, man, I died. I died on stage, you know? And he's like, oh. He says, let me help you. He goes, um, do you think you're the only Muslim that died on stage? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, another Muslim died on stage. I knew that was very funny. I'm like, who is that? And he goes, Malcolm X. And in his way, he's going, man, stop man, whining. Man. You're just talking about a show. You ain't talking about your life. So after that point, it was just yeah. various check-ins. I would see him. I'd take yeah. gigs to work with him. Um, the last time I saw him was at his 80th birthday party, and I emceed it. Now, the crazy part yeah. was we had a show in D.C. at a place called the mm -hmm. Riot Act Theater, the Riot Act Comedy mm -hmm. Club. And so the owner, his name is John X. He's like, hey, man, I got a special surprise for him. He goes, I talked to Mr. Gregory. He's coming down to see your show. And I'm like, yo, man. I'm trying to do my show and I give a dissertation. You don't know what you did. And I remember, I remember being nervous, but I remember being, you better be sharp. Mm -hmm. You know, because the guy watches everything. Mm -hmm. You know, you figure he has this vast, his, you know, vast volumes of knowledge. If you're giving somebody else's bit, he's going to know it. If you're stealing somebody else's premise, he's going to know it. It's like a jazz position. Right. You play somebody's riff, everybody knows you right. can't play the beginning of. Love Supreme right. and go, it's mine. Right. No, it ain't. Yeah. Round midnight, it's mine. My funny round, it's it's not yours. So I tell a joke and the show's going well, Ali. I'm 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 doing I'm doing a thing. I tell this joke about political parties. And uh it goes, there's too many political parties out here. It's easy to get confused. You really don't know who's who. I, I say you got a Democratic Party. You got the Republican Party, you got the Libertarian Party. I said, you you got the uh, Tea Party. I said, I said, and for the black people, self-hating, you have the Sweet Tea Party. <laughs> and he literally gets up and goes to the exit. And I'm like, oh, Mr. Gregory I, I did that. Or the, bar, the boss of the club did. No, no. Uh -huh. he, Mr. Gregory's like, like, he leans in, he gets up. Oh, and I'm man. like, man, I, I hope I didn't walk Mr. Gregory. You know what I mean? Ali, I come out. He's mm. waiting right there. I get dressed down for the next 45 minutes. Mm. On the lack of black, Muslim, political action committees, da-da-da, da, 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 da I mean, he's making oh, correlations to, to the Planet of the Apes movie that just come out. Did you see Planet of the Apes? Back? <laughs> and people walking by like, <laughs> just, um, not, not, oh not my God. he does this all the time. Oh, um, my God. I'm getting shredded. And then he, he gives me a hug and goes, love you, man. Keep working. I'm like, you just shredded me for 45 minutes. I haven't moved out of a space. But I just mm -hmm. had that much respect mm -hmm. for him. And he was right. He was right. That was how I met him, man. And, and you know, mm -hmm. when he was laid to rest, I was there in DC.
I was there with, uh, in fact, I was there with Chappelle's mom and his sister. And uh, laid him, you know, when he was laid to rest, minister did the uh, eulogy, and it was just like, it, everything kind of came together. And it was funny, the, yeah. uh, Minister Farrakhan started talking about Dick Reagan, he goes, he's the only man that can out-talk me. Oh, wow. That's enormous. I never heard that. If you go to, like, the, the eulogy, yeah. he says, he goes, Dick talked and I listened. Amazing. That's incredible. These guys are, are giants. Yeah. And the greatest conversation I think we had, one, we had great conversations. But I asked him, I said, when, it, when, it, when do you know when your purpose is up? Mm. Mm. He gives this long soliloquy about, you know, all of my contemporaries are dead. He was a comedian for Malcolm. He was a comedian for Medgar. He was the comedian for, for Martin. Yeah. He was a comedian for yeah. Ali. He was all these guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he said, sometimes you have to keep working and wait for the world to catch up to your purpose. Yeah. I love the fact that you listen to this podcast and it probably also means that you're connected with the music. Every time we have a guest on, there are people that come around just because they're fans of that guest. So that might be the case too. But from the very beginning, we've been making music, me and BK1, who's the producer of the podcast. If you haven't listened to those two episodes with BK, go listen to them. It's absolutely foundational to understanding what we do. That's my partner in the podcast. He was my first DJ. And he helped me um, do some early recording. Also, the understanding of how to do what we do and why we do it. It's really important to check those episodes out. But you'll hear that it's always for us been about doing what we feel and then finding the people that that resonates with and having this real living relationship with them. We're like, you know, there's another way to do it where you can go to the corporations. Like you get some success, you get some people following you. Maybe they aspirationally want to be like you or something like that. You show them how much better your life is than theirs. You know what I'm saying? And I'm, I'm being a little cynical, but I'm trying to simplify it. So, you know, you make people look up to you and then you go sell that to corporations or whatever that power is, whatever that connection is. You sell it to people who have money so that they can sell their products or that they can sell their airtime or they can sell their advertising time. And that's never been what we do. So a lot of times you talk to sponsors of podcasts and they're like, oh, show me your numbers. Anytime somebody says, show me your numbers, we're not having the same conversation. We don't do this for the same reason. It's like, no, don't show me your numbers. I'm interested in like, does this actually touch people? Is this a lifelong commitment and conversation and interaction between people? And we're blessed that that's what we do here. So when we started, we used to go on tour and we went all over the place. And whether it was a big room or a small room, people paid their 20 bucks to come to the show. And we were able to collect enough of that so that we could also live and our families could also live and the people who depend on us and the team that helps these things happen that can't always be out on tour with us all the time, that we can live off that. We're not asking for anything more than just let's equally participate in what's going on here. And when we were doing in-person events all the time exclusively, that's how we lived. 
And last year I toured the whole year and it was dope. And people came to all of those shows. Some of them were packed and sold out, even though we were just coming out of the pandemic. And it's beautiful. And from doing that, that's still the greatest way to support what I'm doing. And certainly it's still the most lucrative. But this podcast is in a new territory where like streaming just does, they don't pay the, the the content people. It's just the name of the game. They just don't. Sometimes they pay us fractions of a penny. For podcasts, they don't really pay you anything at all. So you either take your podcast that people love to listen to and start selling you corporate stuff, or you do the other model, which is the subscription model, which is what I'm talking to you about now. You just basically say to people like, yo, we're bonded. Let's continue to build this bond and this connection and this community in a way that allows you to support what we do and allows us to give you content that's just for you, art that's just for you. So if you go to brotherali.com, the join section, uh, we have the caravan and there are different levels, different ways to engage. The $5 level, you immediately get access to all of this stuff. Like we just posted an Ask Me Anything episode. It's two hours of me just talking about stuff that people wanna hear about, questions that come from caravan members. We also got a bunch of rare exclusive music and videos, live performances, lectures. There's like intimate gatherings that I'm speaking at. There's entire albums like bodies of work that came out at a certain time or place that aren't available everywhere. You just can't get them unless you were there in that moment. The Rites of Passage tape, my demo tape that started all of this, you can't buy that anywhere. But if you join the caravan, you can stream it, the entire thing, whenever you want. The same thing with like mixtapes that I've made and demos that I've made. And there's just a growing, we add to it every week. So go to brotherali.com, go in the join section, uh, get down with the caravan. On the upper level, the $100 level, I mean, that's just a very, very special thing for a group of people that really are like living with this stuff. So shout out to those people. We call them trailblazers. I mean, we got a Slack channel where we communicate with each other all the time. Like people are part of each other's lives. People are talking to each other about their kids and their their depression and their anxieties and their fears and what their work means to them. We got a really dope school administrator in there who her life is just incredible, dude. Her life story is so amazing. It's a miracle that she's alive and doing what she's doing. And she gets up every day and goes into public schools trying to advocate for kids, trying to advocate in a, in a way that's very real. And she just shares with us what a nightmare that joint can be sometimes. And there's people in there supporting her. Like, yo, I just want to say, like, I appreciate you. I'm learning so much from you. You know what I'm saying? And then there's like a Muslim homeschooling mom who made the choice. Like her mother was extremely educated and she's very extremely educated. And she made the choice in her life that like, I'm going to dedicate my life to educating my children in an independent way. So that's what she's doing. And then other people, like, I don't want to like reveal stuff about people's lives, but man, we got people that come from different walks of life, really sharing life there based on what the music is about, what the message and what the ethos is. You know, some of them are Muslim, a lot of them are not. It's a really, really beautiful thing. So go to brotherali.com. There's a mailing list too. If you're not going to do anything, just sign that mailing list. So I can send you emails every now and then when something cool happens. But go to the join section, get down with that caravan and uh, continue to build this community and this movement. We appreciate you very much. Do you have a relationship with the other comedians that come out of DC? 
you connect with Earthquake and Martin Lawrence and Monique and like all of these people that come out of that. What's is there is there a communal connection and vibe? No, because I was older. Mm. When I left the school, it was eighty four. Okay. In a vague memory, I remember playing basketball against Martin Lawrence. Uh, you went to Eleanor right. Roosevelt uh, High School. And there's a place called Glen Arden. It's maybe 10 minutes away from my mom's house. We're playing ball. We lit them up pretty good that day. Mm. But that's it. A lot of the comedians in D.C., they are they're lifers. Mm -hmm. Like, D.C. has a weird culture. There's a level of, I graduate. I'm going to go to school, but I'm going to go to school locally. Howard, University of Maryland, um, the, good, the big schools, Georgetown, AU, George Washington, George Mason. You had all these schools. Um, and then out of that were the Baltimore schools. Morgan, And then there were guys that like, if you left out of D.C., a lot of times you were an athlete. Like you were going to play ball for someplace. But I left thinking I was going to play on tennis scholarship at Marquette University. Didn't work out, and I wound up, that summer I was there, I wound up just evolving into, yo, I want to be a stand-up. And so my comedy career is really rooted in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. So I was a D.C. dude okay. going through the Midwest process of being a comedian, but I was still a D.C. dude. Like, even the language used to freak out people in the Midwest. They're like, what country are you from? Mm -hmm. You're not from here. Yeah, man. I go, I went to Minneapolis. They were like, what, what is this all about? What are you? <laughs> they had a booker, and and this is old school. You see how you have like the social media and then DM me? We didn't have that. Right. It was a comedy guide, and he gave you a list of all the comedy clubs and all the comedy bookers. So what you would do is you get yourself a tape, a beta or VHS, and we send it out to the bookers, and it take them like a month and a half to look at your tape. And they figure out if they want to give you a week of work or two weeks of work or, you know, a run of dates. And I remember there's a guy in, the guy from Minneapolis, a guy named Tom Hansen. And I remember doing a club that I only did it once. It was a place called Acme Comedy Club. Oh, yeah, it's big. It's still there. Yeah, yeah. So I did Acme Comedy Club literally when it first opened. SubhanAllah. Mm. And then how did you get to the point where you start to be noticed, uh, especially so when you start writing and you start doing the Hollywood thing. Because I know a lot of people would go through, they would try to get on Letterman or Carson or something like that. What was your road into being recognized in Hollywood? It's probably a blueprint a lot of dudes do now. Um, when I was in Milwaukee, we would get national headliners coming through. So you get like Daryl Hammond, George Lopez, and a couple other folks that were national headliners. Not blowing up. You know, um, Daryl Hammond wasn't on Saturday Night Live and George Lopez didn't have his show. But they would come to this club called the Comedy Cafe in Milwaukee. Mm. And I would be emceeing or featuring. And it's like the musician thing. Like, you'll, you'll tell somebody, hey, man, here's a line that might work right there. So you'll watch all these comics and it was beyond just a line. I'm like, I'm looking at how you how your blocking was when you turned that joke. Did you turn right around and say it? Mm -hmm. You know, did you put your head down? So it was very meticulous, you know, because you're, it's like if you write music for a band, you know, if you got to write music for a drum, it's not just, you got to write it for the bass drum, the hi-hat. So, you know, guys looking, 
all these different combinations, or as they say, rudiments in the, in the drum game. So it's all these rudiments, and in comedy, there are not a lot of rudiments. So you find yourself mm-hmm. making them up. Like if you and I write them, reckon them good. I'm like, Ali, man, that was like, if you can go a quarter longer with that, that thing, right, it's going to be right, you know? And so you had to, but in comedy, it was that. And, and I'll be honest, man, comedy was then and is still now very sloppy. It's a very sloppy game. Hmm. But social media is very sloppy. Cats can't hmm. really write jokes. Cats don't write concepts. So the majority of the people making money in Hollywood are the writers and executive producers. Plus the fact that a lot of first time folks, I got my show, I got my name on it. You don't own that show. Hmm. The minute that show fails, you can't go do another Preacher Mall show. It's done. Right. George Lopez has never been right. able to do another. George Lopez show. Disney and ABC know own that right. name. So I learned yeah. that writing, while I was trying to get my, my stage presence together, but the writing was there. So one of my my my, my OGs, man, I'll be pleased with a Muslim brother, uh, Reginald Kitchen, who directed me back to Islam, uh, stayed on me, a big brother. I'm showing him a tape of what I'm doing in Milwaukee, right? And he goes, hey, man. You need to just, you need to go with that writing for a minute to the stages. You need to go on that writing. I'm like, you know, and you're hurt. You know, you're my boy. But I'm like, maybe there's something to it. And then I started looking. I'm like, yo, this writing is a beast. But I have a natural yeah. cheat because I have my degree in broadcast journalism. Mm-hmm. Broadcast journalism to graduate, and you can appreciate this, to graduate in broadcast journalism in the old way, you had to be able to write efficiently for every medium. So. TV, newspaper, radio, got to write your own marketing, press releases, magazine. You got to be able to write all that stuff. And you become proficient at it. Like sometimes I'm watching a TV show and I'm going, well, they think they wrote it for TV, but it sounds like radio. Mm-hmm. Like I watch comedians like, you are, you're doing a press release. You're not really doing TV. And it's like, because there's a different thing to it. Just the amount of lines <clears throat> that for a TV show or news, you know, it, lines have a certain amount of seconds. You know, four four seconds a line. So how long is a 60-second show? A 60-second uh, news piece. And it's like, you remember that. It's like music. So it's like, if it's a 3-4 bar, there's a certain accord in a 3-4 bar. If there's a key of G, you're going to play everything. G, but when you, get the, when you get the F, it's F sharp. These are the rules. It's the nomenclature. It doesn't right. change. Now we really don't have anybody that pays attention to nomenclature, but I was paying attention to it back then. So the writing was different. So stand-up got better in Milwaukee. Um, Daryl Hammond was like enamored that I'd go on stage, do 30 minutes, wasn't cussing. I might do 30 minutes of cussing off stage, but I was doing 30 <laughs> minutes on stage. At least I could control it there, you know? And he was amazed, and the writing was really good. All praise to Allah. It got pristine because you had all of these details. And so it was that and Lopez. And then you start writing for guys. So it's Lopez who <clears> convinces <throat> me to get out of Milwaukee, run with the big dogs, come to California. You're going to love this story. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come out. And I'm like, I, I quit my job. I'm telling my family, I'm leaving Milwaukee. I'm going to, I'm pursuing my dream. I'm on I-70 going through Colorado. It's snowing. If anybody goes to Chicago, I mean, not Chicago, but Colorado, understand that when it gets really snowy and icy on those roads, 
They don't use salt, they use sand. So your boy doesn't know it. I got a money green trooper. I'm happy. I hit the sand at about 65 inches going. And then it starts turning. You're like, I know this is not going this is not gonna be good. So as it shows, the, the car is turning, it's getting ready to flip. I did what anybody would do, Ali. I turned the music up. <laughs> so I, I'm turning up Ohio players. Fire! And then it hit and, and flipped. And, flip. and, and that was my journey to Hollywood. Um, trying to get there. Uh, I remember I, I had a gig in Fresno at this place called Ray's Comedy Club in Fresno. And the guy forgot to book me, so we double booked. So it's three acts instead of two. And uh, there's a guy who used to be on Full House. His name is Dave Couillet. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to get fired. And Dave Couillet is like, no, you're going to stay. You get a hotel. You're going to work the week. So I wound up working the week. And I needed that 500 bucks, man. Like, badly. I needed the 500 bucks. I had no car. All my life stuff was in a storage space at a gas station. I'm paying them like about a week. Um, cars total. But in that that space, man, you're talking about DC Comics. That's where the determination comes from. Mm-hmm. That we're not New York. We're not LA. We're DC. And DC has a very, very strong history going all the way back to Marion Barry when there was no black mayor. They had a control board. You know, the police were not black police. They were like West Virginia rednecks that would come up and beat the hell out of black folks. Mm-hmm. Marion Barry was the first coordinator of SNCC. So that ties into my mother. My mother and my aunt went to Howard University. So you, you see what the, the difference is now. So I had a mm-hmm. really robust experience. So I leave uh, Washington, D.C. I go to Milwaukee, and uh, I'm thrown into the Stone Ages, man. I'm like, I'm like y'all know you're free up Oh, uh, I'm going back to DC for supplies. Y'all need anything? I was you know, that arrogant. Man. Chicago, Chicago, everything is coolly high, and you know you, you you see it. You're wrong, but you see it. But there's a different type of growth. So to to get to the the funny part, get to LA. George Lopez has hyped me to come. I pick up the phone. Beep 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 beep. The number you called is no longer. <laughs> oh, the number you called is no longer. So now I am in this job, teaching in Long Beach. Um, I got to figure out, you know, hey, I'm, I got a car with no credit, no job, um, and I basically got the car and drove out a day later. A day later, before they figured it out, and I was just paying a bill. I that year was nothing but hitting the clubs, hitting the clubs, because this is how you know it. So getting out, doing open mics, doing open mics, doing open mics. I was everybody's Uber before Uber. All these comedians want to be comedians, don't have a car. I'm like, you ain't gonna make it in LA. But it's like you got into the scene really heavily immersed. And one night I'm at the Laugh Factory, and young comedian, uh, John Adams is on Paramount TV now. But I'm getting ready to get out of there because it's late. I got to teach in the morning. And I'm like, man, I'm going to get out. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't don't leave. Don't leave. I'm like, what is it? I got to go. I'm thinking it's some girl or something he's trying to talk to. He says, dude, up, upstairs want to talk to you. And the dude happened to be Damon Wayans. Mm. And it wasn't the greatest relationship with Damon. Damon Wayans, he was going through some personal stuff. And I think I pissed him off like I pissed off 
Paul Mooney. Because <laughs> he, he said he wanted he said he wanted to write about black leadership and he felt like he was a black leader. So your boy evidently doesn't read the room like I think the room is. So we get to get ready to write, and I'm like, I can help you out. He's like, yeah. And I pull out a brown, uh, like a shopping bag with like seven books in it. You might want to read those. He's <laughs> like, yo, man, you might want to read those. And he's like, what? Um, but he said something. And I just mind if you're out there and you're listening, you should, you should give some love to Damon Wayans. And Mo Amer. He was writing a book that it was called Bootleg. And he was doing some movie. And he looks up, he goes, let me ask you a question. He goes, um, in this game out here in Hollywood, he goes, do you want to be a, uh, he said, do you want a job or you want a career? Mm. What's the name, folks? I mean, job, J-O-B, means just over broke, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, no, I don't want a job, I want a career. And he goes, good. He goes, if you want a job, he goes, keep going down there telling jokes like you can do. See, if you want a career, he's like, learn how to write. He's like, learn how to write. And I had already been doing that. So writing was always my ticket. Yeah. Daryl Hammond hooked me up with a power meeting with a power broker in, uh, in LA. Remember Brillstein, Grade 8? They were hot off of Gary Shandling's show. Oh, yeah. Oh, Sopranos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to Brillstein, Grade, man. That's the big as it gets. It's the big, and I get there. Uh, the guy's name was Jeff Chetty. I'm just throwing him out there because I don't even know if he's in the business. <laughs> but <laughs> hey, you know you have a good show if he calls up <laughs> your podcast. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you get a cease and desist letter. Yeah, but I'm talking him across the table from Jeff Chetty. Uh, Del Hammond has big me up. He tried to get me into Brilson Gray Three Arts, but. I'm talking to Chetty, man, and we're having a great conversation. He's being able to see stuff. He's seeing videotapes, scripts, things like that. He's like, man, I really, really like this. Da, da, da. You know, I, I'm feeling, and I'm feeling like the meeting's going well. And then he goes, but, you know, Daryl told me that, you, that you're Muslim. And I was like, yeah. He said, what does that mean? It means I follow the religion of Islam. He's like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, you know, I can give you the five pillars, da, da, da. Like, you know, but it means I just want to, as a black man, I just want to live my life a certain way, man. This is... God's blessed me to be in this space, and you know, he goes, "Yeah, that's interesting." You hear that word? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that interesting is. So let me let me ask you this: Say we had an opportunity to make you know a really big amount of money because we've been talking about being a supervising producer on the show. Remember, best damn show, best damn show on network. Mm-hmm. Dude, he's talking about we can get you on there. That's like fifteen thousand dollars a week writing. Dude, this is like ninety. This <laughs> is like. 96, 97. I mean, hey, look, you know it's four weeks in a month, right? (laughs) (laughs) But it was funny because you're trying to hold it together. And he's like, yeah, man, so what if we had a chance to make? But, you know, you had to make a little compromise. You had to do a little this. And, you know, maybe you had to, you know, smoke a little weed or, you know, a little drink a little alcohol. You know, maybe you had to, you know, almost like put on a dress. Mm -hmm. Here's where that nation jumped out. Nah, man, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't have it in me to say, well, I can't because it hasn't been that kind of a life. Right. Yes, sir. It's no compromise. You broke the rules. You know, if I break That's the right. rules, then I, right. need the, you know, I need repentance, I need redemption, 
I broke the rules. It's not like yeah. we compromise and we're good. And so he goes, thanks for coming. And uh, I think I had the shortest Hollywood meeting in the history of the entertainment industry. This is how bad, this is how you know your meeting to go well. I'm going out, I'm leaving. I go to the secretary, I ask her, can she validate my parking? She looks at it and goes, oh, baby, you don't need a valid. You weren't here that long. <laughs> I'm like, I can't even get validated parking. <laughs> I recently had a conversation well-known super agent in, uh, in LA. And we've never worked together. Before I could even get to the project I was going, he goes, oh, I've watched your career for the last 30 years and da da da. So he's like, he's like, let's rip the Band-Aid off. And, but it was funny because he's like, you left Hollywood to do the other made me funny. You could have stayed in Hollywood. And I was like, dude, if I'd have stayed in Hollywood, it would have never happened. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Hollywood gets you intoxicated. I would have been intoxicated. I was writing for the George Lopez show coming out of that, you know, and I held my own on stage. And a lot of people don't know that. Hey, Preacher Moss did mainstream comedy for quite a long time. And that's the only reason why right. I made me funny was successful with those relationships and people trusting me on stage. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't even tell him what the bodica was for me leaving L.A. You know, and then you get this this 20 year lifetime joint. I said, I can't even tell this guy what 20 years in this community really meant. Next year, it would have been right. 40 years for me doing stand up. Right. Stand up, writing, keeping, keeping, there were times I couldn't be a professional stand up full time. I had to take these jobs, teaching. I drove, I drove illegal cabs before there was Uber. I did everything in that space. People don't know. I work warehouse jobs and hoping to get to, you know what I mean? Hoping. I'm going to get off here at five. I'm going to shower up and get to the club because it was like that. People don't know that kind of hunger like that. I held my dean here for a bunch of years till I got to a place where I could have this platform, like all made me funny or things like that. I mean, we knew the hustle back in the day. We got Yuck Yucks Comedy Club to serve no alcohol. And they were like, we make money off of alcohol. What do I'm doing? Yeah, but two months ago, you had Alcoholics Anonymous show here and no alcohol was served. Mm-hmm. How'd you make your money? So it's like muting all of these weird, you know, these, this weird pushback. I'm like, yo, because we've been in the game a long time. Yeah. And there's probably, maybe not so much for the rap community or the hip-hop community, but there's not really much of a comedy community like it used to be. You know, the, the yeah. great, the great my mentor, uh, Harry Weber, told me something years ago. I went out to see him, and he talked about the Muslim community. And... and I went out to see him. He was a world-class ad executive. One of the first black faces on Madison Avenue. He was the first artistic director for Motown, right? He coined the name King of Pop for Michael Jackson. Crazy. My baloney has a first name. I'm stuck on Band-Aids because Band-Aids stuck on me. Ford, quality job one. United Negro College Fund. The mine is a terrible thing, terrible thing to waste. These are all his campaigns, Ali. Crazy. And I'm like, man, if he dies, nobody knows about it. I'm like, nobody's going to get his story. And I asked him what he meant to her. He's like, no. He said, but if you come out to L.A., I'll spend a couple of days with you. Now. So we're sitting at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles on Gower, right? And he's like, so what do you want? I'm like, hey, man, I'm a Muslim comedian. This is what I'm, I'm strong with. I'm like, look, I, I'm a Muslim comedian. I want to help improve the image of Muslims in America. And he looks at me with a face full of chicken and goes, you can't. <laughs> I 
And I'm going. <laughs> he, he goes back to eating his chicken. Put the chicken down. <laughs> you just told me. You just told me I couldn't. And he goes, let me help you out. He said, you want to change the image of Muslims in America? I said, yeah, he goes, let me ask you a question. Go what? He goes, you know how much money was put into that image? Mm. He goes, um, half a billion dollars on Coke and Pepsi products. He said, what do you Muslims spend on you? So, you know, the ego is, is worse. It's like, eh. And then he yeah, says this to yeah. me, Ali. It's the dopest thing. It was the coldest thing I've heard. He says, one of, he said, you're a journalism guy. I go, yes, yes, sir. He goes, he goes, write me a, 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 write me a print line, top line for a press release. He hands me an old greasy chicken bag, and I'm writing it, and I'm writing I'm, You know, I'm like, I'm going to show him, right? But I'm not really going to show him. I'm like, I already got my face smashed. This ain't going to work out well. And he looked at me mm. and he goes, you know, he reads it. Muslim comedian wants to change the image of Muslims in America. And he goes, he goes that's BS. I told you you don't know what the hell you're talking about. He goes, that's the problem with you Muslims. I'm like, oh, dude. And Ali, he takes a pen. And he scratches it out and he writes something else and he turns around and gives it to me. He says, read it now. It says, Muslim comedian sets out to raise $100 million to change the image of Muslims in America. He said, you have eliminated about 99% of the people who are going to give you any false arguments because they don't believe that they can get a million dollars, let alone $100 million. He said, you may never, ever, ever, and this is your journey, you may never, ever find that person. There's a person out there that can write you a check for a million dollars. But there's a bunch <clears> of people <throat> that can write you a check for 100000 200000 10000 And you put that journey together. And he's like, that's the way you have to think. Black folks, I love us. Great at, great at making moves, horrible at making decisions. That's what he said. Great at making moves, horrible at making decisions. Yeah, because we're just talking. Man, I'm going, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Make a decision. Make a decision. And from that, it's like, whatever happens, you know, I'm just going to make decisions. Good, bad, in between. And hey, man, I've, 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 I've had some serious money thrown my way if I'd done this, that, and the other. You probably have too, but it's like, yeah, but if it's like, I ain't going to feel like a man when it's over. Right. If I got to look over my shoulder every time, I, or somebody's coming down, they're going to make me feel a certain way. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Mr. Weber was right. You know, understanding how much money goes into these images. You know, how much, how much energy goes into these facades that people have. You know, I want to be, I want to appeal big. I want to appear big and da, 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 da. You know, a guy said, um, one time he said, um, he was writing my, my intro. He's like, yo, you want me to tell him that you are, uh, you know, Dave Chappelle? And I'm like, no. He's like, why not? I'm like, is it Dave ain't here? <laughs> right. This is not verifiable. This means, look, if he was here, he's watching me as a comic and a friend. That's it. Right. And it doesn't help my performance on stage. Mm -hmm. Before I go on stage, everybody to play my kazoo, I want you to know that I know I listen to <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie, everybody. We used to ride elevators together. <laughs> I, I love my... I, I... <laughs> I love Miles said that him and Diz, like Diz loved to ride elevators. He was like, man, we would go and ride elevators for hours. 
this was beautiful. But it was it was that. It's like, yo, you know, a lot mm. puts you in the right lane because people are getting it, but you're talking about that correctness. Is your heart in line? Mm. You know, it's a thing when you're happy and you feel like a lot's happy. Yeah. It's powerful alignment, man. I write material. Write material. Some of the stuff like I can't even say that. That ain't even me. I call other comedians. Hey man, go ahead, take this line. For real? Just take it. You know, one of my one of my one of my little brothers is Corey Holcomb. I love Corey. Okay. I give jokes to Corey. He's like, man, you give me this mom. So I'm like, yeah, I can't say that. <laughs> I shouldn't even be thinking <laughs> it, but you go ahead and, and run with it. And it's funny because these are the different type of we were at an event one time and people were like, how do you know Corey? Ooh. <laughs> I'm like, that's my brother. That's I say he's an artist. I say, but I know him mm-hmm. on the stage. And you know, when we talk about it, that's the thing about like Chicago comics. Why I think Chicago comics are really, really successful. Dion uh, mm-hmm. Cole, uh, Corey Holcomb, D. Ray, Hannibal Burris, all them guys. You know why? Because the Midwest is extremely territorial. Yes, sir. You know, preach. I never heard it expressed this way, man. But it's you're really onto something with that one, man. I really appreciate that framing a lot. And I'm blessed because I came out of D.C., so I had two territories. Mm. Therapy, 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 therapy. Time to talk about therapy. One of the things about being a human being is that the stuff that's worst for us, that harms our health, that harms us, a lot of times that stuff is really yummy to us. And we're just built like that. It's one of the challenges of the human condition. And on the flip side, a lot of times the stuff that's most healing for us, that's best for us, is just really distasteful until you start doing it. And then once, and it's the weird ego thing that the ego is like, don't do that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, don't, don't cut out sugar. Don't start eating healthy. Don't start, don't go to the gym. But then the second you go to the gym, your ego starts being like, yes, everyone should go to the gym. And so you like, you, you know what I'm saying? You take a little photo of your workout or something, and then you make a post on social media trying to be uh, <laughs> motivational for other people to go to the gym. It's corny, but all of this is part of who we are. And the therapy is one of those things that a lot of times we don't want to do it because it's good for us in ways that's really easy to push back against. Like, no, you don't, you know, I don't got to tell some stranger all my stuff. Okay, you're going to tell your stuff to somebody. You know what I'm saying? Chances are you're posting about other people on social media. You're complaining to your significant other. You're talking about somebody behind their back. You got all these conversations. I've had a year of arguing with somebody in my head and they win every argument. I don't know why, you know what I'm saying? And then I saw this person and they don't even know that they have said horrible things to me over the past year that they'd never actually said. It's just in my mind, I've been doing this. You are focusing on, we all are focusing on the stuff that we're uneasy and unsettled about. 
You know what I'm saying? Whether it might be horrific traumas in our life, it might just be the normal stuff of going through life, but you're getting this stuff out some kind of way and it probably is not as healthy as it could be. Let's just say it like that. So I make music about this stuff and it's really good for me to do, but therapy is different. I talk to my spiritual advisors about these things and that's really good to do. But therapy is different. It's a very, very, it's like you take all of that energy that you would channel into, you know, sub tweets and all this other mess. And you talk to a person who is intentionally there not to be your friend, not to be your buddy, not to be popular, but they're there for the sole purpose of how do we look at this in ways that are healing for you? How do we make this an intentional, productive conversation? So yeah, talk to me about all the stuff that's bothering you, and it can be as petty as you want. But what we're going to do is reframe it, reshape it, and you're going to direct it. So these people are amazing. Like They're able to listen to what we say and then just repeat it back to us with a little twist on it, or maybe even ask us a question that gets us to think about it differently. It's incredible, and I couldn't recommend it more highly, uh, but you're not going to do it. But if you are... <laughs> <laughs> like if you do. So I, I say this all the time, I don't live in America and I don't have a job. So I can't just go get therapy the way that a lot of other people do. I heard about BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P on a podcast. I use it. It's helped me tremendously. Um, it's just incredible. So if you, But if you go to betterhelp.com slash travelers, that lets you know, I heard about this on Brother Ali's podcast. He keeps on telling me to go to therapy. He thinks something's wrong with me. He thinks I'm crazy. Let me see if that's true or not. Um, but then when you do that, you'll get a discount and they also give us a commission. That's our, our partnership thing with them. Betterhelp.com slash travelers. And then you do a questionnaire. You tell them why you're coming to therapy. Uh, and then you start making all kinds of decisions immediately that puts you in the driver's seat. What kind of therapist do I want to talk to? What kind of therapy do I think I might be interested in? What are good times to meet for me? Do I want to just text for a while? Do I want to talk on the phone? Do I want to turn the cameras on and see each other? All of that stuff. And if you ever want to switch your therapist, no hard feelings. You're just like, yeah, you're, you're good, but I don't feel like you're my therapist. I've done that twice. I switched therapists twice. There was like a therapist and I'm like, this stuff is dope. If you wrote a book, I would read it. You're a very wise person, but you're not tailoring this. It doesn't feel like you're tailoring this to me. Like this is Ali's therapy and this person should be listening to me and helping me unlock me specifically. So like, man, if this, if this therapist had a podcast, sign me up because I'm benefiting from what they're saying, but I need somebody who's here to serve me. And it's one of those times where being selfish, the more selfish we are, the better the outcome. It's one of the times that we're really, really, it's good to be selfish. So go to betterhelp.com slash travelers and uh, get down with this therapy journey and see if it helps you as much as it's helped. Everybody else has done it. You know, I toured with Ghostface Killer and he used to always say, tonight we're conquering land. He would always say, we're going to go conquer land tonight. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like that thing that like we're going to build a new colony of the people that receive our art. And that's what, I mean, that was the organic part of All Made Me Funny. Yeah. That was the organic part of- How many countries did you all do with that joint? Whew. Only one we didn't do was, I think, China, South America. We did Australia, oh, New wow. Zealand. We did 
parts of Europe, did the UK, been to Iceland, closer to the United States, um, did Africa, South Africa. So, I mean, we've been around. All that made me funny becomes this thing where we're trying to engage religious ideology with entertainment and people are not really seeing it right then. And the pool is like, yo, I'm doing this. I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm like, but they're not ready. Or, you know, it became a period whereby folks would, would, they look at the model. Because there were things before Allah made me funny. I don't think people realized, but they didn't necessarily stick. Mm -hmm. Um, Axis of Evil didn't really stick. Uh, They had a group called Arabian Nights. Didn't really stick. And that was the whole Arab thing. So you get that whole vibe that they don't want you around here. You're not Arab. You don't have any Arab friends. I'm coming from where I'm coming right. from. I might as well had you know you know WFM on, on my on my on my colleague. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you ever look at old yeah. notes of how I wanted to put together, all I made me funny. It's very detailed, but it's not jokes. It's a curriculum. I have a curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's an education part. Like I said, you know, you got to go and figure out what people are doing. This lady wanted tea. You write that down. Your mom said X, Y, and Z. Don't do it. Why do you say don't do it here? Oh, I see why. Don't, you know, da-da-da. How are people going to react? Da-da-da. And you build out forecasts and contingencies. And, you know, the whole idea of Allah made me funny in Muslim entertainment, in my mind at the time, was if it's done correctly, then it becomes really this, this pro-intellectual movement that's tied to the spirituality, you know, spirituality and we can have a legitimate learning organization for people that are coming through who don't want to be comedians, but maybe how do I build infrastructure for my, for my identity as a Muslim, a Muslim man, a Muslim woman, right, a black right. Muslim. And these are the things that, that get lost because yes, people are like, show me the money. <laughs> people are like, show me the money. Preach, have you ever come across uh, Toby and Wigwe? He's a rapper, uh, he's Nigerian uh, descent, yes. but he's in Houston, mm-hmm. man. Because, you know, he came up in the internet time, but he created his own entire space. Like, you know, he's there always with his whole family and everything's lime green. Maimuna uh, Yusuf toured with him. And she said when they go into a theater, they put paper down on the stage and the floor in the audience and they paint that lime green. Like the entire world that they're in is lime green. And I was thinking about him when you were talking about the ability to really do his thing on stage because... He did come up in the social media era. He made perfect songs for social media that got shared. But man, he's different because when he's on stage, it is undeniable. And he's got his whole, like I said, his whole family with him. He's got singers. He's got everybody is wearing matching outfits. There's choreography, the way that he speaks to the audience. He's a special one out of all of the people that have come up in the last few years. Like, man, Toby and his whole family are really special, man. What what I like is he tells a story with his family. Mm-hmm. You're watching the conversation they're going to have 10 years ago. Remember when we were in Las Vegas and we did X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Remember when we hit the, the memories are just constantly yeah, special. Yeah. And re- I mean, dude, it's, it's, it's a story arc. Because he's yeah. going to tell you when he couldn't even do that. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, though, because like the topics that most people talk about in music now, especially in the hip hop space, they're talking about their escapades or their exploits with women. 
But and when Toby does that, he's talking about his wife and he's talking about it in a way that's befitting of talking about one's partner. He's letting you know like, hey, I'm attracted to my wife. My wife is my friend. I love her. He did a live stream show one time and he was like, he was talking to his wife, just this like candid moment. And he's like, baby, do you see me? Do you see me when I was doing that? Did, did I look good to you? And she was like, yeah, you look good, Toby. He was like, I would smack you on the backside, but I don't want to disrespect you. You know, just little things like that, man. Or, or, you know, when people talk gun talk, he's doing that, but he's saying like, I'm protecting my family. Or when they're talking about money, he's like, I got generational wealth for, that I'm leaving to these children. It's like, man, it's just a, it's just a very different, He's different, man. Dr. Swad uh, Abdul-Kabir, mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah, shout out Dr. Swad. She was at the Versailles event, and she was talking about the policing of hip-hop. How a lot in the Muslim community, people try to police hip-hop. Like, this is something you had nothing to do with, but now you feel like right, you right, 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 right. The same thing with comedy. Caught up Dr. Jackson, Dr. Sherman Jackson. Uh, it was right before the Mo show came out. And the question was, you're going to watch it? I'm like, I've already seen it. I said, no, no, I said, no, no dope, no district. I've already seen it. Did you watch the Rami show? I already saw it. You saw the Bamboozle show. It's a very detailed right. thing, the way this thing works out. And I said, you know, they won't know, and it's not for them to know, and it's not for them to indulge if they don't want to. I said, but the reason these shows are coming out is like there is a precipice that you don't cross. And the one thing you're not going to talk about is white supremacy, anti-black, and anti-black race, uh, anti-black Muslim racism in the United States. And I'm like, it's so <laughs> embedded, it's scary. You know, it's scary. We can talk about it, you know, because we've <laughs> created lanes. You know, we can talk about it because we've, we've created platforms. But it's funny to watch shows and it's like you know, ain't no ain't no ain't no real brothers on there. You know, real discussion. You know, everybody in the, you know, everybody in the Muslim world loves hip hop. But ain't nobody trying to go to jail. <laughs> I love hip hop and I ain't trying to live in Harlem for 15 years and learn the craft. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I love breakdancing, but you ain't trying to go to the BK right. to learn that craft. See, I mean I appreciate you because in your craft, uh, if, if if you could take off your shirt metaphorically, people see your scars. Yes, sir. And these aren't the scars that scars, but these are the scars that didn't kill you. They made your back stronger. Yes, sir. Artistically, people don't understand that space. And, and then now we have these, oh, you're you're old school, you're new school. I mean, no, you're, you know, we're we're from a different space now. I can't mm-hmm. say it's coming back. And when it does come back, it's it's sort of like hearing somebody redo a song that's already been redone. Mm-hmm. You remember yeah. when it first came out? Yeah. Like I, I, that's what I love about hip hop. You can't redo a hip hop song. You know, I think Snoop Snoop was the exception that proved the rule. Snoop Snoop redid the Slick Rick joint, but that was the one and only time. The one, but and I didn't like, like a, it. That's a one time thing. But I, but I didn't like it. I didn't love it either. I'm just, I'm not going, not like, not like I'm going to run into Snoop, like, yo, I ain't like that remix. But if I did, I'm like, yo, I ain't really like that remix. If you ask me, I'm going to tell you. You know what I'm saying? But I'm like, especially because you were in your own lane. I'm like, you were, you were already in your own lane. 
Brendan, the producer of the podcast, was my first DJ, and he's also from Milwaukee. Oh, and um, sorry to hear man, that. Man, we used to cover, <laughs> we used to do these like New Year's Eve shows where we would rap over all the hottest beats, like all the like, we'd rap over Jay-Z beats and all that kind of stuff, but we'd do like my underground songs over Jay-Z beats. But after a while, we started doing covers, and we did a cover of uh, Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash over a hip hop beat. <laughs> we started doing like that kind of stuff, man. We used to, yeah, that was I don't that mind it as long as, long as, as, long as you, you, you kill it because it's Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. It's like you got to yeah, kill especially it. Especially that one. I'm like, yo, you oh, got to. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's like when you were kids and you'd be uh, reciting Richard Pryor jokes. Uh, right. Everybody knew you weren't Richard Pryor, but you better not mess that joke up. <laughs> Yeah, but you get you told everybody. You know, I heard Richard Pryor. Remember when he said, and that gives you the disclaimer. And that Negro said da da da. You know, and, and we would, you know, all of his albums. We love the albums, but Dick Gregory was the same way. It's like, you know, one of my greatest conversations with with a comedian. I'm in Milwaukee. I'm coming home for a private event. I want to work on some material. I want to do a guest set on the second late show. I call. Yep, yeah, we got room for you. I get that when the first show is going on, Ali, the headline is up, and I'm just working on my material, and I hear this voice, and the joke is, man, I tell you, time's getting so hard in my neighborhood, the drug dealers had to lay off the police. I'm like, who the hell? (laughs) (laughs) And I looked up, and it was Nipsey Russell. Amazing. And I grabbed the phone at the bar. We didn't have cell phones back then. I'm calling people. Nipsey Russell's in Milwaukee. Come down. Nipsey who? Nipsey Russell. Even the black comedians. I don't know Nipsey Russell. And I just walked up and I was like, Mr. Russell, you are a vital part of the black entertainment economy for comedy. You, Mantan Moreland, Red Fox, Moms Mabley. And I was like, you know, I'm I apologize. More brothers are not down here, but I, but I know. And we sat and we talked. We had lunch the next day up to the show. And he told me about uh, Toba. Toba was a theater or something. A theater operators, black Toba really meant, they call it tough on black asses. <laughs> so all these <laughs> theaters were owned by people who weren't black. <laughs> so all these theaters were owned by people who weren't black. They bought in black entertainment. Uh-huh. So that's why... At the Apollo, you hear about Apollo here, do like six shows. I'm like, six shows? That's why. Um, but this guy gave me this very, very detailed understanding of the evolution of black comedy because you're not going to get it anywhere. Mm-hmm. You're not going to understand that the highest paid uh, black comedian, it was Moms Mabley. And, and Moms was a lesbian. And she still got paid. <laughs> wow. And uh, that period when black comedians couldn't talk directly to a white audience. They had to talk yeah. to one another and the white audience listened in. So it was right, him and right, Mantan right. Moreland. Yeah, you know, he and Mantan Moreland. I love Mantan Moreland. A lot of people don't. They're like, oh, he bucks his eyes. I'm like, you got to understand the time. And he talked about the lead into Amos and Andy. And he talked about Red Fox. And he said, you know, the challenge of Red Fox. Red Fox doesn't break it in Hollywood till he's in his 60s. Right. And he tells the story. So, you know, like we talk about, man, if I'd have done it right and done it, it's like, look, you're going to, the way you arrived there, he says the way you're supposed to do it. Don't sweat anybody. Take it, take advantage of the technology. If Red Fox and Richard Pryor had Instagram pages, 
What would, what would we be talking about, Eddie Murphy or Dave Chappelle? If Dick Gregory decided I'm not going to pursue social humor, do you even hear about a Bill Cosby? You see what I'm saying? Mm. Mm. So people are in their spaces for you know a particular reason, but I, I think you know like Mr. Russell said something. He said you know the one thing we can't really sell to America is the truth about what it is to be black in America. And he said the artist is the last fact is the is the the last hope to be able to do that. Right. Because we have to put in yeah. these these platforms for people. You know, you remember the old days, three channels, ABC, CBS, and uh, NBC, and uh, whatever yeah. you got on VHS back in the day. But he's like, yeah. you know, you have to understand. And he talked about it was going to be a time where people are going to be able to put stuff out on it. Some people, like you, you, you got Toby, he's using technology, but he was already special. Yeah. His concept development was already there. Nobody else can do what he does effectively, right. not even closely. What you going to You're going to hire extras for your family? Come on, we need a little kid. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's you not. Know, well, you're going gonna to rap like him? Oh, now you're Nigerian? <laughs> now you're Nigerian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm horrible, I mean, you know how I am. I'm not going to lie to you. But, you know, it's like, yo, can can you stop? You know, can can you stop? The cats don't get it, Ali. I'm like, I think when a lot of calls us home, this place is gonna be in a lot of trouble, man. man. And that's one of the things when somebody like like uh, Mr. Gregory passes away, or just you know, the Imam Muhammad and just lost Dave from De La Soul. And Bismarcky and like, man, there are there are these people that pass, and it's like there is nobody to replace them. No one, no one can replace them when they go. Well, man, preach, I can't thank you enough, brother. I feel like I want to do this again and again and again. Like we should just I'm, I'm gonna bring you on the shout out like, show. Maybe it's like once once every couple months, we'll just do a, a travelers podcast shout out show collab. That's what we need to do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm going to have you on the shout-out show, so, you know, I, I hope in advance you accept our invitation, because... I'll cancel my birthday, not cancel Christmas, brother. <laughs> Yo, i never forget one time you posted a... Uh, I can't remember if it was a, a tweet or Facebook or something. You said, uh, shout-out to all the Muslims out at Christmas shopping. <laughs> I know there's a whole list of them. Shout-out to Muslims that break their fast with a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to oh, all the Muslims that are having problems with their girlfriend. <laughs> Yo, man. Shout out to Muslims looking for girls on ChristianMingle.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get one here and then I'm gonna convert her. I... <laughs> well, you, are man of faith. Huh? you are a man of faith. You are a man of faith. Oh man. I'm horrible, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I thought about that. Mike Epps on his new choice said, "Man, never, never, never date a girl that don't respect your wife." <laughs> I know that's a Corey Holcomb joke. Uh, I gave him that joke. Amazing. I gave him a premise. So, man, my girlfriend found out I was cheating on her with another girl. Got mad and called my wife. <laughs> yeah, man. He does that's the whole amazing. act that's... out. It's on. Uh, if you ever watch his first comedy, Comedy Central special, 
He does that joke. Mm. It, that joint is just brilliant. It's hilarious. Like he sets it up like uh, the girlfriend sitting there with the wife. And he's like, what's going on here? I've been seeing her. She's been telling her, telling me everything. See, you can't trust her. I was with her last night. She said she was going to tell you nothing. <laughs> That's the cleanest Corey joke. Corey joke I, t- I could tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, man, you you consistently are somebody that you're such a an example for us and a brother to us and a an inspiration. You know, you're somebody that means just means a lot to you. Mean a lot to me, man. And you mean a lot to a lot of people, and you know I would. Um, it's it's I, I've learned a lot watching the way that you carry yourself and the decisions that you make and the moves that you make, and also just the person that you are. And so, man, I, I just love you and couldn't appreciate you anymore, brother. Thank you, man. Love you too, Art. We appreciate you. And listen, uh, when's your birthday again? I don't know. Sometime in July. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm gonna send you a uh, hundred dollar coupon to Red Lobster in in Istanbul. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go there. Oh man, oh, my man. mom probably knows oh, yeah, where it is. Are... Ali is one down on. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah that that time that I that we that I got to hang out with her it was only that one time, but it was so nice, man. I think she came out to the. When Mo taped his show the first time in DC, I think your mom came to that. If yeah, I'm yeah, not mistaken. yeah, yeah. Man, that was a fun time. My mom's my mom's a hoot, man. I'll keep her in your department. She has some health issues, but I keep her in your department. I'm gonna show her this uh, this thing, man. She's uh, she's in rehab right now, getting better, humpty now. But I'm gonna let her listen mm-hmm. to this because she's like, I know that man, and that's, you know, she's gonna lecture both of us, so don't worry about it, bro. That's all right. That's all right. She's old head, you know. She's one of those. I, I was in the civil rights movement when I was at Howard. Da, 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 you got to hear it all. I saw Malcolm when he came to Muhammad's Muslim. I'm like, I got you, man. I got you. You were there. I wasn't. I got you. But it's, it's so much love that they even want to share those experiences. You know, normally yeah. we shush them off, whatever. Nope. Can't shush them off, man. But listen, man, yeah. give a big hug to the family. Give them my duas. Uh, shout out to my main man doing the engineering, Brendan. Shout out to him. And yeah. uh, we're going to do this again, bro. Let's let's get on the shout out show. Got, I got nothing but love for Brother Ali. I love you, man. Much love and special thanks to my dear big brother, Preacher Moss for being so generous with his time and his insights and his wisdom and with himself. Man, Preach is a special dude. He's just really, he's so unique too, you know, just the way that he speaks and the way he sees things and the way he lives his life. So it's just a really beautiful thing to be able to have that connection, that relationship, and to be able to share it. Make sure you go to brotherali.com in the join section, get down with the caravan. It grows every week. There's a bunch of new people that join every single week. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't done that, do it. It's five bucks for the basic level and you automatically and instantly get access to all this stuff. And then also go to that link where you can put uh, pros your ask me anything questions. And man, feel free to be mega real with me. 
I, I respond to every single question in there. There's nothing in there that that's off limits. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we appreciate it a lot. Travelers Podcast produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1. And it's a product and a production of Travelers Media. Special thanks to Emna Mirza, Mansour Panawala, Darian Washington, Last Word. Mark from Medina Hip Hop did the logo. Ant, my man Ant, did the beat. The music that you hear is the song called The Travelers from our 2009 album called Us. We love you. We appreciate you. I think you might really like what we're fixing to do next week. Much love. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.